give meaning to that word forever. For without you, the word forever would just be a fairy tale. It would be unlimited, Lord, but with you, knowing what that word means, knowing that we can spend forever with you and forever as our king, what amazing an idea, Lord. And we thank you for that. Today we pray for your presence to be here, almighty God, for your word to go forth. Not anyone else's, not anyone else's agenda, but your agenda. That your name be magnified and glorified. We put this morning into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh, while you're standing, while you're standing, if you can grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 13, and we're reading from verses 23 to 28. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, Open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. I'm going to read one more verse from Philippians chapter 2 at the end of verses 12 uh, to 14. It says, continue to work out your salvation. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act accordingly to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, before you sit down, uh, if you can do two things for me. One, turn to your neighbor and give the greatest compliment you've ever given anyone. Go ahead and do that. Those are very weak compliments. And number two, I'm very lonely in the front here. If you guys could all move up a little bit. It's a very small group here today, and uh, It'll uh, at least make us feel a little bit more intimate if you guys could come up. Join me in the first couple rows. Um, nothing to be afraid of. I don't bite. Please, uh, if you can, move up a little bit, and we'll uh, get some time of learning, uh, going back to the basics. But you, you guys can come up, and you can sit down. You have to sit up. Well, good morning. I know some of you have the day off tomorrow, so uh, thank God for that. I don't. I wish I did. 
a very important part of Scripture today. Uh, it's very dear to me, and I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but before I dive into that, if you would ask an American adult if they believe in heaven, what do you think their response would be? An American adult. There's actually been a couple polls that they go and they ask them, all right, do you believe in the afterlife? Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in hell? Random American, and believe it or not, 72% of people, of U.S. Americans, believe that there is a heaven. 72%. And 58% believe that there is a hell. This is across uh, uh, different denominations, uh, unbelievers, atheists, uh, all other religions of the world, about 72% believe in heaven and 58% believe in a hell. And right there, you, you can ob obviously understand that there is a difference between the two. So there are people who believe that there is a heaven, but they don't believe that there is a hell. So if you go a little bit further, if you dig a little bit deeper, and you ask the question, well, uh, how do you get there? How do you get to heaven? Or how do you get to hell? And if you asked a random person on the street, usually the answer that you would get across the board, depending, it doesn't even have to be a non-believer, but even some so-called Christians would say, if you do more good than bad, if you do more good than bad, you'll go to heaven. And then some, well, other, others may even say, as long as you don't, don't do those, the terrible sins, as long as you don't murder or rape or one of those terrible sins, then you're going to go to heaven. Um, but for those murderers, they'll go to hell. And that's kind of this basic, uh, and, that, and that's today, that's 2019, if you ask a random person if they're going to go to heaven. And um, I think we can appreciate the beginning of the, script, uh, the scripture in Luke, because that question is important, because here he's asking, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Okay, and another way to say this, Lord, are only a few people going to heaven, and are a lot of people going to hell? And to use the statistics that we just used, Lord, are maybe 7% of people going to heaven and 93% going to hell? Is that how it's laid out? Is that how hard it is to be saved? It's interesting. Wouldn't you want to know the answer? I mean, if you were there and Jesus is walking around, wouldn't this be a great question to ask? At least he would kind of gauge, all right, well, if it's a certain percent, then maybe I fall into that, right? Maybe that's what this guy was asking as well. Maybe he wanted to get some comfort in knowing that maybe he, he feels like he's, more, he's better than other people. and Maybe he deserves to be in heaven. But Jesus' answer is actually pretty interesting and uh, pretty scary. He uses the word, many will try to enter and not be able to. Many. Later on in verse 26, many will eat and drink with those that are saved and not get into the kingdom of heaven. Many. Many 
have heard the teachings of Christ, but they will be on the outside knocking on the door and not be able to come in. Many Christians believe that if they say the sinner's prayer, maybe when they're eight years old, and maybe if they are with their Sunday school class, maybe around the age of 13 and they all get baptized, then maybe that is the way they can get into heaven. They check both of those boxes. And if that was true, then my question for you would be, if your life would have been the same, whether you, the, uh, separate from the five minutes or the ten minutes that you said the sinner's prayer and you got baptized, if your life would have been the same before and that your life would be the same after, then my question to you is, what were you saved from? What were you saved from? If you're going to tell someone that you were saved, what were you saved from? I think it's a pretty interesting question. And here Jesus is saying many, many people that hear the teachings, and this is not even talking about those that don't even believe. If, if an atheist doesn't believe, they're not even... They, they don't want to listen to Jesus. They're not eating and drinking with Jesus. They're not making any efforts to be in heaven. So we're not even talking about those. We're talking about those that hear the word and that will be on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty scary, right? That's the answer from Jesus Make every effort. So today's message is called, Work Out Your Salvation. Work Out Your Salvation. That comes from the verse we read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12. Work Out Your Salvation. Now, our, my first point here is a very important one because the misconception of working out your salvation is that you would have to do works for your salvation. So number one is working out your salvation is not work for your salvation. Okay? We're not saying by works, by things that you do. If I do this, if, I, if I'm really good, if I uh, walk the, the old lady down uh, across the street, if I, uh, if I donate a lot of money to missions, if I do a lot of these things, these works, then I will be earning salvation. In no way is that. You cannot earn salvation. There's plenty of scripture that tells us this. Ephesians 2.8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. And later on it says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Galatians 2.16, nonetheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. 
Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So it's very clear that it's not works, that you don't work for your salvation. But for some reason, Jesus, his first response to this question isn't, oh, yes, right when you say the words, you will be saved. He says, make every effort, every effort. That gets into point number two. Work out your salvation requires releasing control. Now, God has given us two things that we can control. Two things. Can't control the weather. Can't control the stock market. Can't control your wife and kids. I've tried. Doesn't work. If anyone has, let me know. Take some notes. No, but the two things that you can control are your effort and your attitude. Effort and attitude. And the word here, when it says make every effort, the Greek word that's used is a word where we, is the, where we get agonized from. So it's like agonize. And the word actually comes as like a wrestling term. You've got to fight. The other uh, this, this word is actually used in a, a few other places in Scripture, and it translates directly to the word fight. So Jesus himself is saying fight. Fight for your salvation. Fight for it. It's going to be very tough, but you've got to fight for it. So if I'm putting my gloves on and I'm, I'm stepping into the ring, Lord, you want me to fight, so... Who am I fighting? And as you step up into the ring and you put the gloves on, you end up and you realize that you're fighting yourself. You're fighting you. This is who you're fighting. Because there's a part of you that wants to be you, that wants to do what you want to do. They want, this you wants to be in control. And Christ is saying, I need you to fight. It's not going to be easy because you know how you get. You know how you are. You need your eight hours of sleep. You need your television shows. You have your schedules. You have your agendas. And Christ is calling you to fight for self-denial every day. Every day we must decrease. And every day he must increase. And you keep on growing. And you're in this fight. Every day you have these urges. And, and you kind of think about as a kid, you had different wants as a, as a five-year-old. You had different wants as a 10-year-old, 20, 30, 40, 50. You had these different wants in your, in your, in your body. And every single time you got to say, no, Lord, have your way in me. One of the verses that we read in Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 13, it tells us if we give up our schedule, if we give up ourselves, God has a plan that is way better than we could ever imagine. All we got to do is give up the two things that we're able to control. So if everything else just kind of happens, I can't control that, 
Lord gave me two things I can control, and now he wants them both. And the second one, I don't want to um, talk over it and miss on it. It's attitude. And attitude is equally important as effort. You can try to do everything that God's asked you to do, but and be, be really mad all the time. I hate my job, hate my church, don't want to do it, but I'll do it. But in the background, just arguing and grumbling. God doesn't want that. You can't have one without the other. It's all this effort fighting, but doing it with a grateful heart. I'm going to do it. I want to do it. I have a true desire to do whatever efforts, whatever it takes to start killing this self every single day and allow Christ to live in my life and to move because he has bigger plans for me. I always think about Peter when, uh, when Jesus asked him to throw the net on the other side and what he must have been thinking, I've been fishing every day of my life. I'm a fisherman. That's my occupation. I catch fish some days. I don't catch fish the other days. In following and listening to Christ, that one day, he caught more fish in that day than I have caught in an entire lifetime. He made my occupation obsolete. Obsolete. When we put things in God's hands, when we decrease, he has bigger plans for us. But all we got to do is we got to release control of the two things that we have control over. Eliminates freeloaders. Work out your salvation. If you do that, it eliminates the freeloaders. You guys know any freeloaders in your life who just kind of come around and uh, I I guess, uh, you know, like those that, find their way to church when uh, there happens to be food afterwards. You know anybody? And they don't really come any other Sunday, but they somehow always know when there's food after church. Or if there's something free given out, somehow they're always there. They're always in the front of the line. But anytime you need something uh, like uh, some help, they're nowhere to be found. Anyone know anyone like that? No? Okay, well. Good for you, because I know a few. Um, Freeloaders. In Acts chapter 8, there's there's mention of a man, uh, they call him Simon the Sorcerer. And uh, what his his job was, he was kind of like the magician. He's like the David Copperfield. He's like, hey, let me show you what I can do. And, And that's how he got paid. And when Philip kind of came, comes in and he sees the power of the Holy Spirit work through Philip, Simon is, wow, this is amazing. I want to be part of this. And so he, he believes. He gets baptized. Then you have Peter and John kind of enter the scene. And as Peter and John are there, they take their hands and they're laying them on people there. And as they're laying their hands on them, They start speaking in tongues, and there's evidence of the Holy Spirit on them. Simon the sorcerer sees this, and he's like, I want some of that. I want some of that. 
So he goes over to Peter and John. He pulls out a couple twenties out of his pocket. And he says, hey, I'll give you this if you can give me that power. He was only in it. He checked off those boxes. He said, hey, I believe. I got baptized. But he was only in it for his own, his own agenda. That's all he wanted. He wanted some power so he could probably go to another region. And then maybe he was thinking, if I buy this power where I can lay my hands on people, then I can go show this power off and make some more money off of it. He was thinking about number one in his mind, being himself. In the beginning of Luke chapter 12, there's mentions of tens of thousands of people following Jesus wherever he went. Tens of thousands of people. And they would see miracle after miracle after miracle. People were getting blessed. People were getting healed for things that they had for years. In the beginning of Luke chapter 12, tens of thousands after Jesus resurrects from the dead, there are 500 people that are witnessing and that are following Jesus. And ultimately, a few days later, about a month and a half later, there's 120 people, 120, that sit in a room and that are still praying after all the miracles have gone away and they forgot about that. So if you imagine the tens of thousands, let's just say, all right, maybe that was 12,000, and it could have been way more than that. Well, from 12,000, you went down to 120 people that were willing to sit in a room and wait on God, which is 1%. 1% people were willing. They weren't there just for the miracles. They weren't there just to kind of have the news for the day, the gossip for the day. Hey, did you see who Jesus healed the other day? It was crazy. I, was gonna, I, I went to go follow him a little bit longer. And did you see what he did? And they're watching the miracles, but not having any sort of relationship with this master, with this savior. The freeloaders. There's an old western, and uh, uh, in the old western, there's a, a doctor. His name is Gary Cooper, and uh, in this show, there was uh, these young gunslingers, and you know, they, in the old west, like they they do the draw and they're they're shooting the other guy, and uh, a young man gets shot, and uh, Gary Cooper, as a doctor, comes, and he's able to pull this bullet out the package the wound, and ultimately saves this man's life. And uh, as uh, this man is in the hospital and he's recovering, he says, Gary, I've, uh, I owe you my life. What could I do to make it up for you? And Gary says, well, I need an assistant. Can you be my assistant? And so the man turns back to Gary and says, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, for how long? And then Gary says, for the rest of your life. Because 
If I didn't save you, you would have been dead for the rest of your life. So that's what you owe me. You owe me to be an assistant for the rest of your life. Think that's a bad deal? He saved your life. You would have been dead without it. Think about that for a second. What is your salvation worth? Is it worth the rest of your life being an assistant to the doctor? Or are you going to go back to gunslinging? Point number four. Work out your salvation is dedicating your life to serve. And what other person does this emulate than the person who wrote these words in Philippians? And that's Paul. Why would Paul go through so much trouble? If Paul, once he became a Christian, just said, thank you, Lord, for making a Christian. Now let me go my way start a family, and make sure they know Christ. And that's it. But for some reason, Paul, being a very, very intelligent man, rather trade that very easy life than to travel all around the world. And if you want to think about how much Paul traveled, think about the continental U.S., where he goes from the the east side to the west side, back to the east side, back to the west side, and then meets out halfway in the middle. Three and a half times the width of the U.S. continent, uh, the continental U.S. That's how much he traveled. That's how much he wanted to share the gospel. And he probably would want to travel even more, but he was probably imprisoned. So he was imprisoned. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He was shipwrecked. And he's the one who says, work out your salvation. Because he was dedicated, he dedicated his life to serve. That's what he wanted to do. He knew that it was important. There was a, and back in June of 2000, uh, sorry, of June of 1995, there was an F-16 and the, uh, the, the, the captain of that plane was shot down over Bosnia. And uh, when he landed, he landed in hostile environment. There's nothing he could do. He didn't have anyone by his side. He, all he had was himself and a few things as far as first aid goes. And after he was shot down, these uh, Bosnians were looking for him. And if they found him, they would torture him and publicly execute him. It's as if he had no hope. The U.S., at that moment, they couldn't say that they were going to go into Bosnia for one man. They couldn't invade Bosnia for one man. So it's as if he was left alone behind enemy lines. And for six days, he was on the run. He was hiding he was running, he was hiding, he had no food. What could he do? He was just waiting to die. He says in his book that he was a dead man walking. He was just waiting for the moment when he would be captured. And now he had a friend that was in the Marines, the Special Operations. 
And there was a group of these Marines that said, you know what? We're going to go. We're going to go into this area, and we're going to save him. We're going to save Scott O'Grady. These Marines were trained for years. These special ops were the best of the best, the elite of the elite. They had to be highly intelligent. They had to be great and quick on their feet, good with their gun, good as a team, a team player. They had to be the very best at what they do. They trained to the nth degree. And then when they came into uh, the area, they, had, they wore the Bosnian uh, army gear so they would look like they were one of them. And they snuck in and they found this man. They found Scott O'Grady and they saved his life. They brought him out behind enemy lines. And if you could understand that for one second and how what our lives mean, we have to be trained like a Marine is trained. I'm, simil- I'm putting us as those Marines or what we're called to be. And I'm calling those people across the line or those who are not truly saved. But the only way that they can be pulled out is if they... If there's someone who's trained in every kind of way, the best of the best, and not just that, but willing to step over that line, go, reach out, and save this person. They don't have to. They can stay on their side, their comfortable side of the U.S., wherever they are. But they have to have a heart for this man. And you would have to have a heart for maybe someone in your life that doesn't know Christ. You truly would have to love them, to be willing to step out and to get killed. It's amazing when I hear this story about what these Marines would do because how much uh, they are dedicated to their, their country In this particular case, a good friend of the man who was behind enemy lines. The last part is my last point, and I'm done, is that working out your salvation is not just for you. It's not just for you. Because if we think all this is just for us, we're missing a bigger bigger picture. It's not just for you. Now, I know I've shared my testimony in this church a few times, but I felt led to uh, share a, port of, uh, a part of it again, especially because of the scripture that we read. When I was 19 years old, the Lord revealed to me very detailed Luke chapter 13 in the portion that we just read. And the way that the Lord revealed it to me was I was in a hotel, and I was looking out the window, and I saw everything else on fire. Everywhere you look out the window was on fire, but I was protected in this hotel. And as I looked down, I saw a bunch of people huddled at the front door of this hotel. And as I looked closely, I, 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 I knew that they were my friends. I knew in my heart, I couldn't recognize them by face, but I knew in my heart that they were my friends. And I heard the conversation of, please, 
let us in. And the man at the door is saying, I'm sorry, you waited too long. I can't let you in. And they keep on pleading, please let us in this door. And the man at the door said, I'm sorry, you waited too long. I can't let you in. And as the Lord reveals this to me, I'm thinking, all right, well, so generically, God wants me to uh, preach the gospel. Maybe generically, okay? Even at this time when I'm 19 years old, I don't even know the scripture that well. And I didn't realize that this vision and this dream was actually was in the Bible. So I'm thinking, yes, okay, so let me figure out a way to share the gospel. Maybe generically, uh, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And as I, as I move on, and I, I, I don't really take this seriously, or Luke chapter 13, I don't take it seriously, the next few years of my life were heartbreaking. My very best friend was killed in a car accident. Very best. I mean, people thought we were brothers. We hung out all the time, slept over at his house. He slept over at my house. We had every class together. Um, in every kind of way, he was my brother. And he was taken from me. And he came from a Muslim background. And I had every opportunity to share the word with him. But I didn't want him to think anything different of me, like I was trying to do something. I didn't want to feel uncomfortable. But it, it, was, it was my loss for not sharing the gospel with my best friend. A few months later, uh, as, sorry, at this time, I'm, the, I'm in an organization on campus, um, this, uh, this club, and um, I'm the vice president of the club and the president there, and we, we do a lot of work behind the scenes. And I talk to this guy every single day, or maybe every other day, and uh, he was dealing with things that I just, I, I didn't want to uh, put attention to. I'm like, all right, well, you have your issues, I have mine. I could have shared the gospel, and I decided not to. And he ended up taking his own life, and he hung himself on a tree right outside his parents' house, feeling hopeless. And I could have been that guy to help him, but I wasn't. Played in a lot of basketball uh, tournaments my whole life, and one year I played in the intramural team, and it was me and this other guy, and we kind of carried the team, and, uh, and every, every time that we would come to a game and we would sit on the bench, he had this 7-Eleven big, big gulp right next to him, and I knew it wasn't a Slurpee. I knew that it was infused with alcohol because he couldn't function without alcohol. He couldn't drive without alcohol. He couldn't play basketball without alcohol. He couldn't do anything because he was so chained down to alcohol. And then one night after uh, he, he, he went out with his friends and he just felt a little hopeless and he decided to take his own life and jump off a bridge. A few months later, another friend of mine who used to cut my hair back when I had some and uh, me and him were very close. Uh, we would talk all the time, but I knew that he would be high on coke half the time, and I said nothing. I said, you got your problems, and I got mine, and I saw it, and I could have witnessed to him, and I decided not to. And then one day while he was high on coke, somebody owed him 50 bucks, 5-0, 50 bucks, and they didn't pay up. 
And he, he took a knife and he ended up killing that other man. Taking the body and uh, taking it down to a, rail, a railroad track and burning the body. And now he's serving life in prison. I could have shared the gospel with him. I had an opportunity and I didn't do it. What I'm telling you is their lives are important. Many, a lot of the reason why I started Awana here at this church was because of this chapter, Luke chapter 13, because of how it affected me. And another reason why I started a lot of things, maybe home groups were because of this chapter. My challenge to you is one, one person, one person that God has strategically put in your life. You think it might have been random, but God strategically put this person in your life. Are you willing to love on this person? Love to a point that you couldn't see this person outside that building, knocking and pleading. Could you love that person? And then when you love that person, understand what they believe and be willing to do research on it so you can reach to that person and tell them the truth. My challenge to you, because working out your salvation is not just for you. It's for everyone who looks up to you. Everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this morning time. We thank you for your presence. And we thank you for your word. Your word is so powerful. It speaks right to our heart. We don't have to fluff it up or put smoke in mirrors. Your word is powerful all by itself. Lord, I pray that we grow a little bit more every day. And growth is dying to self every day. As we work out our salvation, that we may not be satisfied with just saying the sinner's prayer and just being baptized but that we work out our salvation every day. We love you, Lord. What an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray.